then get started, and I just thank you all for being here. Heavenly Father, I uh, praise you for your sovereign majesty, <clears throat> for who you are, and I ask that this night you would show us more of who you are and help us to understand that as we embrace your nature, we begin to understand uh, and grasp hold of answers to the perplex perplexities of our lives. We began to discover answers to our questions that uh, dog us and um, hound us. And I thank you that uh, this is an opportunity in this study for us to really go back to ancient places with you and discover afresh um, new vistas of uh, heaven and of earth and of you and of ourselves. And I pray that you take this time tonight and um, be the, um, the teacher so that the words that we hear come from you and the words that we process are processed by your mind and help us to hear what we need to hear from you tonight. I pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to read from uh, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, uh, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, that um, verse from uh, the NIV version forms the frames, uh, our study, as we're going to be going back and looking at the ancient ways of God and why things work the way they work for us today, the only way we can understand that and understand how God and why God works as he does with us today and have some sense and peace about pain and suffering and a loving God and how all of that works that those answers are to be found as we really go back with God to the beginning of time and before as the scripture lays out for us and seek to understand particularly in the Garden of Eden uh, what got set up and why and so we're going to be you know looking at those cataclysmic uh, events in Genesis 3 that sent the, the world careening on its axis and uh, creaking and groaning into, from a, a pristine, absolute realm into a very murky stew that we live in today. And so uh, I have sheets there for you. Um, they're, it, they're loosely uh, laid out because uh, I'm not quite sure what sequence the Lord is going <laughs> to lead me in here. But uh, some of the scriptures we won't go into, but they will be yours to reference if you want to. But as we look at Genesis um, 1, the first chapter uh, of Genesis, we, we see here the unfolding creation 
uh, as God in verse 3 said, let there be light, and it was, it was light, there was light. In verse 6, God said, let there be <clears throat> a partition in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And uh, he made that, and um, he called that uh, partition heaven. Verse 9, God said, uh, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and the dry land appeared, and it was so. And so what we see here, as, and we all know this, that, that the medium that God used to sculpt and paint his creation, the medium that he used was himself. Creation came out of who God was. He spoke, and it was so. His words were not, I think, not so much sound as they were sight. As he spoke, the planets appeared. The, the stars in the, in the sky appeared. As he spoke, he spoke in the form of trees. He spoke in the form of rivers and water. He spoke, and his word was a living, creative force. It's something that we can't comprehend, but all of creation has come out of who he is. And so we see in, in Psalms, uh, Psalm 148, uh, verse 5, he commanded and they were created. Uh, you see over in the book of John, chapter 1 in the New Testament, we'll just turn there and read briefly. Um, Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. You see the same um, understanding over in uh, Ephesians 3.9 and uh, Colossians 1 that it was Christ who is the Word, and it was Christ, the Christ part of the Trinity of God, that spoke all things into being, that nothing that exists, exists outside of Him. He created all things, both seen and unseen, powers and principalities, the invisible realm as well as the visible, the physical as well as the spiritual. It all was created by the Word, Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word that lived with God and was God. And so you, you get a sense of the, the Trinity as sort of a body and God the Father who, that we um, acknowledge as God the Father is in a sense the figurative body. And um, we don't communicate well with people unless we can speak. Um, and communicate in words, but how do the words come out of our, our mind? How, how do the words come out of our mouth? What is required for the words to be heard? Breath, the Spirit. In John 3, it says that uh, everyone who is born of the Spirit is like the wind. No one knows where they're coming from or where they're going. 
And the word there for wind is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, and it means breath, breath or spirit. Breath or spirit. So the spirit of God is the breath of God. And it is the spirit of God, the breath of God, that sends the word out into the creative cosmos. So we don't understand, and nor can we ever hope to fully understand the Trinity. I, I think we don't have a way of comprehending three and one. They're separate personalities, but they're also one. But uh, you see in the beginning, in chapter one of Genesis, uh, it says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, but we know that the God part that created was the word part, Christ part. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. He brooded over the face of the waters. And what we understand the Holy Spirit to be in our lives is he broods over the face of our deep, and he brings up things we don't want to see. So in the beginning, God created all things and he created it out of who he was. And in, uh, down at the end of uh, chapter 1 of Genesis, in, chapter, in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let, him, let him, them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he them. Male and female. So he said, let us create man in our image, the image of the Trinity. And what does that look like? There's, in a sense, three parts of us, three in one. We have the physical, we have the soul, and we have the spirit in us. Three separates, but one. And um, God looked... In uh, verse 31, and he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. What came out of him in this creative, dynamic force was good. And the final creative act was to create man in his own image. And so I believe at the time, especially if you go over and, and look in chapter 2 of uh, Adam and Eve, <clears throat> and their, their creation, their personal creation, where God breathes into this clay statue, and that clay statue becomes a living soul, that they were in a perfect state. They were in a pre-sinless state, so there was nothing imperfect, no imperfection, no flaw at all in them, and in fact, I believe that they were in this pure unity where there was no real differentia differentiation between the physical and the soul and the spirit. I think they were all in a perfect union. There was no distinction between soul and spirit, personality and spirit logic and reason and mind and spirit because the spirit was infusing their entire being and there was no downgrading of the physical realm because there was no sin 
And so when we see the body of Christ after resurrection, where at first the disciples didn't recognize him. Now he still had the nail prints in his hands. So his body was solid. But I think that's a picture, a likely picture, of the pre-sin body of Adam and Eve. Um, he, was, he was complete in, in, a, in a, a perfect state that was, though he was perfect before, it was different. His body looked the same and yet it looked different. And my, my guess is that that's a picture of how human, the human body looked before sin. And he could go uh, in and out of barriers and locked doors. Uh, he had a power that was not limited by his physical state um, after, um, as it was before his death. Um, that may not be the case, but my guess is it's close if it's not the case. So this which came out of him had to be good because it came out of who he was. It came out of his nature. And so what I'm wanting us to look at a little bit tonight is the nature of things, the nature of God and uh, our own nature to a certain extent and the nature of the earth. Um, but I want us to look, and this is on the second page of your notes, at some of the attributes of God because Nothing that comes from God can be contrary to who he is. And um, as you all turn to the book of John, I'm going to go on over to 2 Timothy and read a verse that uh, I think is like a key for us to sort of like a touchstone, uh, to hold it, this up as a, a key to understanding why God has to act the way he, uh, relate to us the way he does. And we, this won't make sense initially, but I think as we go on down line and study uh, this tonight and in succeeding lessons, it will more and more make sense. So in 2 Timothy uh, 2.13, I just went right past it. Um, if we believe not... Yet he abides faithful. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So what does that mean? It means that one of the attributes of God that we will see here, I think, I hope I included scripture relating to his faithfulness. God is a faithful God. His faithfulness doesn't look like ours. We have, at best, a fickle faithfulness. <laughs> um, the fickle faithful, we could call ourselves. But God is not like that. It says he cannot deny who he is. He cannot go against his nature. And the word there, cannot, comes from the Greek word dunamai, from which we get our word dynamite. It means power. Basically, it's saying that God does not have the power within himself to act contrary to who he is. So 
so what we're looking at here is an absolute realm. And again, we don't have much of a frame of reference for the absolute. I mean, we are all over the place. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. <laughs> I'm committed, Lord, today. But tomorrow, you know, I, I may change my mind. <laughs> um, last year, I was really committed. I'm not so committed this year, and I don't know what's wrong. Those kind, we won't actually come out and acknowledge that to ourselves. But that's what we do. We don't have a frame of reference for the absolute, and yet God, the absolute, is seeking to have a relationship with the fickle man. And he has to demand that we come up to him, to his frame of reference, because he can't bend himself to accommodate our inconsistencies, our unholiness, because he is absolute. So if he is faithful, that is an absolute faithfulness. Even if we are disbelieving and doubting, it does not make him less faithful to us. We may not see him as actively as we do when we are faithful, but it doesn't make him less faithful to us. So that's our, our touchstone verse here, to begin to understand why God works with us the way he does. Why he doesn't bend to our every petition and our every whim. So I'm turning over to join you all in John 9 to look at some of the attributes or the characteristics of the nature of God. In John 9... Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what we see here with the nature of God, as we're beginning this, is he is the light. He illumines our darkness. He illumines our confusion. He illumines the world with whatever other characteristics he has. He is love. He illumines my life with his love. He is light. Turn over uh, to John uh, eleven twenty five. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He is light. He is also life. And it's not just life, it is resurrection life. It is life that came out of the grave. It is a life that entered into death and entered into the grave and came back out of it more boundless and powerful than his life had been before he entered the grave. You know, the message for you and me there is that there's no such thing as hopeless with us. In Christ. There is no such thing as going beyond the power of God to redeem and to retrieve. He is light and he is life and he is resurrection. Turn on over to John fourteen six. 
I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, so often that verse feels to other people arrogant and uh, egotistical, saying, you know, how can, you be the, how can he be the only way? And there's no way to understand that unless we go back to where we're going in the study, unless we go back to the garden and take certain things in the garden literally, think a little bit outside our box and begin in that process of grasping uh, deeper aspects of the nature of God and the nature of some things that happened in the garden. And eventually you come to realize why Jesus Christ is the only way. Because if certain things are as they were or appeared to be in the Garden of Eden, and ultimately there isn't any other way. Now, the love of God will go to any length to reach people who don't understand that. We see that alluded to in the Bible, and I'm not going to go into that because that will get us into a whole different lesson. But it's alluded to in the Bible that he, he goes beyond what we normally would think to touch people with his love, and that the exclusivity of Christ is not a hateful thing, it's a loving thing. And the only requirement he has for Christ to be the way for us is faith. And the deal here is it's not performance, it's not works. Because if it were performance and works, that would, that would cut out a lot of people. It would cut out a lot of people that, that can't do everything right and perfectly. But faith doesn't cut anyone out. Everyone has faith. Everyone believes in something. So he made it where there's this universal invitation that hinders and limits no one because everyone has faith or belief in something. And he made it that way because it's his will that no one should miss this way. We're going to see in this lesson and the next, why it lines up that way and why it is an amazing act of God, the way in which he seeks us out um, so that we might enter into uh, the truth of Jesus Christ and the way of him, the ancient ways. And we're, we're looking back here at the ancient times to begin to find answers to questions in our present time. Uh, Hebrews 12.29. Turn on over to Hebrews 12.29. And I'm not going to go through all of these, but I'm going to go through some of these. In 12.29 it says that he is a consuming fire. And in... Um, Uh, I think it's in Isaiah, he's, he is a refiner's fire. That may be Malachi, but I think it's Isaiah. So he is, and we don't quite understand that, and if we have enough time in this study uh, to get into the holy fire of God, we will, because it's fascinating. Um, 13, chapter 13, verse 8, 
Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constant. He is an absolute constant. He is not changing like we change. That makes him a compass point for us. You know, if something's always moving, it, we can't measure things accurately. We can't measure distance accurately. We have to have a fixed point in the universe to measure the distances between stars. We have to, the mariners had to have a fixed point on the uh, seas at night to be able to sail at night and, and know what, where they were headed. Um, Psalm 34, 8. And then I think I'm just going to stop here and just start mentioning some of the other things that you all mentioned, some of the other things that you know of God. 34, 8. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, he is good. What else is God that we know from the scripture? He's our refuge. He is our refuge and our hiding place. He's more our refuge because of what he is. Because of who he is, he is our, he's our dwelling place, our refuge. Pardon me? He's holy. He's love. Uh, yes, he's just. I'm going to put strong tower up here by refuge. Huh. Strong tower and a firm foundation. They all go together, don't they? Okay. Okay. Okay, righteous, uh, gracious, merciful, full of mercy. Okay, let's just stop here. We could go on and on and on. But all of these characteristics uh, that he is are absolute. And it is out of his being this being that all creation came and that the universe came. And so, yes, when he looked upon it and saw, he saw that it was very good. It couldn't be otherwise. That it has light in this amazing universe of ours. It couldn't be otherwise because it came out of who he was. Now, here's the question that, you ha that I have uh, to ask in chapter 2. Yes. So the saviorhood of Christ originated with God the Savior. And that's in the book of Isaiah? Isaiah 45, 21. So it's not just Jesus who is full of mercy, 
God's mercies are new every morning. God, the larger being, the one that we identify as this larger being, he really isn't, but that's, uh, he is. You know, Christ said that uh, the Father was greater than he, but not different than he. He is Savior. He is the lover of our soul. He's the rescuer of our lives. Now, the question that is begged here in Genesis 2, in this paradise that he created, he created a special dwelling place for Adam and Eve, this man and woman that had become a living soul. This paradise, they had it, uh, were in charge of, Adam was in authority over it, they named the animals. It was a perfect place of beauty and uh, peace. There was no disruption of their life in any way, shape, or form. There were no mosquitoes. <laughs> was no poison ivy. <laughs> uh, and yet in the midst of that paradise, verse 9 of chapter 2, out of the ground he made, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to, sight, uh, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the midst of this garden of paradise, there were two strange trees. A tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 17, he's, he told them, you can eat of any tree of the garden. They didn't eat animals at this time. You can eat of any tree of the garden. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So in the midst of this perfect and good place, that was filled with light and peace. He has two spiritual trees, one of which is a tree, one is a tree of life and the other is a tree of death. Now why would a good God, a loving God, put in the midst of paradise itself a tree that if you ate of it, you would die. That is the first mystery we're looking at here. Why on earth would he do that? The answer and, and goes back, I think, to him requiring that we have a choice. And you say, well, that, I mean, why such a drastic choice? And why did it even exist? Well, it existed because there was a pre-existent life before Adam and Eve. And if we turn over to Ezekiel 28, we'll begin to see this. And we'll look at some characteristics here um, in Ezekiel 28. Now, I'm um, not a legalist, but I do believe in taking the Bible literally unless there is an area of figurative 
clear figurative understanding of scripture like in the book of Daniel. There's apocalyptic figurative speech that you have to kind of figure out. But in um, Ezekiel 28, and you know, there are places like they'll use a designation for a person and you'll think, well, that may not be, that may be figurative. So there's some figurative places that require some interpretation. But there's an awfully lot that does not. And in Ezekiel 28, verse 12, I want us to start reading. And here's one of those figurative moments. Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyrus. Now, we're not quite sure who the king of Tyrus was physically because there was a place called Tyrus. But all the Bible scholars are um, universal and unanimous in their understanding that this is really referencing the beginning of the um, existence of Satan as we know him. Called the king of Tyrus. And you'll understand this as we begin to read this because it's a very strange uh, set of uh, verses. Uh, The Lord said this, You seal up, king of Tyrus, the sum and the fullness of wisdom. You are perfect in beauty. Uh, And I've got space here for you to take notes on the characteristics of this king of Tyrus. You have been in Eden, in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, and it goes through these stones, and these stones are the colors of very many times when heaven is mentioned and the th- where God himself is in heaven, these colors are mentioned. These stones are mentioned. The stones of fire. So what he's saying here is you were in the Garden of Eden. You were in the throne room itself. Uh, the workmanship of, of your decorations was prepared in you in the day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub, King James says, that covers. In the throne room area of heaven, we see this in numerous places in the scripture, there were two guardian angels called cherubs. And here it says you are the anointed cherub that covers, that covers the throne of God. Ark of the Covenant. Uh-huh, and, and when Moses was instructed to make the Ark of the Covenant, you had these two uh, large-winged creatures whose wings covered the Ark of the Covenant. That's what, in gold, here on earth, that was reflecting in heaven, is some sort of a covering angelic being who was very powerful and very great. And so here is this king of Tyrus, also known in Isaiah 14, where we will go, as Lucifer. And um, it says, you are the cherub that covers. And I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways. From the day that you were created, he was created. By whom was he created? The Word, Jesus Christ the pre-incarnate Christ. He was created. An angelic kind of being. 
until iniquity was found in you, until your own pride filled you with violence, verse 16, and you sinned. Therefore, I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. That's a reference to heaven. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by the reason of your own brightness. Your brightness has blinded you. Your light has made your vision dark. I will cast you to the ground. I will lay you before the kings and they may behold you. And it goes on. But he was cast down to the ground. Turn over to Isaiah 14. To the, to the left. In Isaiah 14, it adds a little bit more information starting in verse 12. If I can just get there, I can't seem to turn the page. Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12. Well, I've got that wrong. Uh, back up. Um, I'm in Jeremiah. No wonder that didn't sound right. I thought, how did that go away? <laughs> I know it was Isaiah 40, 14. <laughs> But I'm in Jeremiah, so, you know, make sure you double-check yourself, okay? That's all I can say. Isaiah 14. Thank you, Mike, for keeping me on the straight and narrow here. How you are fallen from heaven, Lucifer. Here's the name. Son of the morning, you are cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations. In other words, he was thrown down to the earth. Now you think, well, why did he pick this beautiful blue orb to throw someone out of heaven and throw them down to the ground and then weaken the nations? I mean, what kind of a God would do this? We could get into our logic and reason and come up with a question like that. We'll get to that in a minute. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. In other words, I will sit on the throne of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And yet he shall be brought down to hell, it says. And the earth trembled. And he did shake the nations and the kingdoms of the earth. So here was this being that was what? Perfect in beauty. He was the most beautiful of the creation that God made. He was full of wisdom. There was nothing that God created that had greater wisdom than Lucifer. He was an amazing creation and he was right there with God. So how did he become what he's described as in John 8? Turn over to John 8. In John 8, verse 44, this is um, Christ talking here. 
And he's talking to the Pharisees, the people who were trying to entrap him, pardon me, and ultimately kill him. You are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning of time. Before this happened, there was no time as we know it. He was a murderer. And he did not live in truth. There is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of who he is. He speaks out of his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Go to Hebrews 2.14. Yeah, uh, Hebrews 2.14. For as much then as the children are uh, partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same that through death, he's talking about Christ, through death he might destroy him that has the power of death. That is the devil. He is a murderer. He has the power of death. There is no truth in him. Absent, devoid of truth. 1 John 3.8 on over to your right in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 8. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. He sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Uh, Revelation twelve ten is where it talks about this great war that breaks out in heaven between uh, Satan and God, and particularly the archangel Michael. And um, in verse 10, it talks about the role that he plays here on earth. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation um, and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ for the accuser of the believer is cast down, which accuses them before God day and night. In other words, Satan is there accusing believers before God and accusing believers, I think, with men. 